0: Trinity Baptist Church, a community growing in faith, obedience, and joy. About 12 years ago, I was just as Paul describes some people in First Timothy. Some people, eager for money, have wandered away and pierced themselves with many griefs. I was some people, borrowing into the lifestyle that I thought I wanted, making risky investments because I was attracted by the prospect of higher returns, That might finally help me pay off my debts. And then Jesus found me. And he let my irresponsibility catch up with me. But he did not leave me without hope. I found myself in church one day, on the brink of bankruptcy, all my valuables sold, nothing in the bank, and with one dollar in my wallet. I wept as I put it in the offering basket. I was so ashamed that after all God had done for me, all I had to bring him was one dollar. Later that day, I found four quarters together on the ground. Uh, That experience helped me remember that there is no condemnation in Christ, and in its place is a calling to represent Christ in all areas of life. Today, I continue on a path of transformation led by the Holy Spirit and God's calling to be a good steward of the gifts he has given me, whether it be finances, talents, time, or relationships. Since Pastor Keith's All-In sermon on tithing, I have returned to giving to the church two months after having to rely on benevolence for help. In the past two months that I have given to Trinity, I have seen a revolution in my faith and in my business. More than ever, I know that God is Jehovah Jireh, my provider, and obedience to his word on financial stewardship is a blessing to me, to the church, to others, and to the Lord, who in the end is the owner and source of all things. My name is Francisco Xavier Jolis Il Segundo, and I am reconciled to Christ. Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 22, verses 1 through 11. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. The word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. I'm not used to being up on this level that much. If we're going to start out this morning, I'm going to let you do these pesky gathering groups of two and three things, but I'm two and three things. I'm going to ask you to share something that is more my alley. Yeah? So everybody turn, introduce yourself to a couple of people and share one complaint about the week behind you. Go. Do you feel better now? did not it feel good? Just got to get it out, right? All right, I'm going to bring you back. Psalm 38.6. Psalm 38.6 says, I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go about mourning all day long. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that's sort of like my mantra for late winter in New York City. Right? I go about mourning all day long. Um, I was at a conference one time where the teacher was teaching us the dangers of cherry-picking Bible verses for song lyrics, and he took that little snippet, and his translation said, all day long, I will grumble and complain, which y'all who run with me know is also my mantra when things aren't going my way. All day long, I will grumble and complain. I would like to write that song. Um, Yeah, I know that... Paul tells us in the book of Philippians not to grumble or complain, and that we should always be grateful. Um, We have hearts of gratitude at all times, yes, but you got to admit that there are times when the complaining feels good, and there are things that happen around us in our lives that make us feel a little less than grateful. If you are visiting with us this morning, my name is Beth Markham, and I like to grumble and complain. No, I am. I am the director of worship arts here at Trinity. Um, the last two weeks, Keith has been unpacking the concept of reconciliation in the context of story, um, God's story, and that's totally my jam because I believe that worship tells God's story. Yeah. In worship, we declare, we remember, and we enact God's story from creation to mankind's fall, to God's covenant with us and his divine rescue mission, um, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and restoration. In which we find ourselves now, today, sort of traveling in this forward-moving fulfillment um, as we wait as in anticipation for Christ to return. But I ask myself, okay, so what am I supposed to do in the meantime? I mean, obviously, we're told we need to spread the good news, right? We, um... Now, see what happened? It it went away on my iPad, but I'm smarter than than the average bear. (laughs) Words on a stick, they'll let you down. (laughs) The question: have to find my place. (sighs) Jesus tells us in Matthew 28. That we're to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and get this part, teaching them everything, to obey everything He has commanded us. Okay, so what did He command us? You can tell me. Feed the poor? Yeah, He said that. Care for the weak? Turn the other cheek? Sorry? Love your enemies. enemies. In fact, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. There you go. Make disciples. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Which has what to do with lament? which is what I'm speaking on this morning. Hold on, because I'm going to get you there, okay? If we're called to make disciples, we do so by sharing the gospel, the good news. But the good news of redemption and reconciliation cannot be good news to any of us until we come to terms with how broken and hopeless we were before Jesus came. See, lament is the part of God's story where the pain is revealed, where we get real, and we recognize and name the reality that things are not how they should be. And you know what? We're kind of tired, and we're broken, and it's not fair, and probably we wouldn't have done things this way, maybe, if we were the creator of the universe and we got to make the call. Did you ever feel like that? When we were dating, my husband used to say to me, "How can I miss you if you won't go away?" <laughs> Isn't that sweet? He's—I still marry. He swept me off my feet. Sometimes, sometimes I feel like maybe Jesus, like He stands back and He looks at us and He's like, "How can I save you if you don't think you need saving?" He laments, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. See, the culture we live in has this healthy appreciation for the art of complaint, do we not? But not so much the lament. See, lament is not whining, It is the cry of those who see the truth of the world's deep wounds and the cost of seeking peace. And the cry is not into some void. It's to the creator. It's to God. But our Protestant work ethic, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and create your own destiny culture, it shies away from that, doesn't it? Especially God's face. Feels a little entitled, right? Feels a little ungrateful. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. That is true. But sin is not good. And living in a world that is broken by sin is not good. And friends, if we're going to make disciples, we have to decide we're going to be real about that. Both to ourselves and to God. You see... This artist loves that. If you sit me down at the piano, my hands are going to go straight to a D minor chord or a D minor scale. It's cathartic to me. We like to define ourselves in, in terms like that right brain and left brain, don't we? Um, if, if you know, in fact, do we have, do we have the slide? Did it, did it make it in? No? Well, if it shows up, you'll see that I have found a very... Um, unbiased slide of the left brain and the right brain. Um, (laughs) So if you look at that, right? Left brain people, y'all like math, yeah? Y'all like logic and reason. All the things we right brain people are thought to skip over in lieu of feeling our feelings and forcing them on the world. Yeah? Well... (laughs) Let me just tell you one thing before I go into this sermon about how we need to feel our feelings. I recognize that many of us here today are coming from different places, different cultures, and different, different ideas of how we deal with our emotions. So if you're here this morning and you don't need me to convince you to lament because you already feel about as broken as you can be will you hear me say to you, go there? Just go there, just press into Jesus. Because if nothing else, the place that you're in right now, no matter how abandoned you may feel, is where God is working to pull you closer into him. And he tells us, he promises us that We will comfort others with the comfort he gives to us. Amen? Amen? But so let me tell you a secret that I bet most of you already know. Left brain people have feelings too. (laughs) Yeah? The point being that God's story is for all of us. Both sides of our brain at the same time. And God knows this about us, which is why I believe that worship is about telling his story and not about our emotions and why we are wired to worship, whether we're feeling it or not. And also, by the way, why what we feel or discern doesn't get to cancel out the truth of the word or the bottom line of the gospel. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. All three at once, not just the one we like the best. I hate that. I believe the church fathers had this very thing in mind when they developed this liturgical year. Most of you guys know that right now we're in the season of Lent, which is the 40 days that we spend in fasting and penitence before preparing for Easter, whereupon we renew our yes to Jesus as we celebrate his resurrection. See, the fathers knew that as humans, we can't just intellectualize our way into greater spiritual formation, We have to allow ourselves to re-experience and reenact God's story so that we may find ourselves there. So we recognize Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, uh, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, and ordinary time, also known as summer. (laughs) So think about summer. What is summer, just thinking about it, what does that evoke in you? Joy. Joy. Heaven, somebody said. Warmth, right? Um, sleeping is, is one for me. Okay, so, so tell me about fall. What does fall tell us? New beginnings, right? Kind of like a return to the routine, which some of us like better than others, right? Um, winter. We're not going to talk about winter. Spring, yeah? <laughs> what, what comes after, What comes after winter is spring. By the way, spring... The translation of which is the old English word, yes, I looked this up this week, Lenten or Lent. See, I always thought that Lent was winter, but apparently not, y'all. Lent, Lenten, refers to the lengthening of days that lead us from the dark winter solstice into the spring equinox when the earth is released from the icy grip of winter. So that's fitting, yeah? Lent is the season of penitence that takes us forward into joy. The church fathers understood that as well as the need of humanity to experience God's from both sides, God from both sides of the brain. In January, I went and took a class at my alma mater from a biblical scholar named Gerald Borchardt. And he was teaching us about Martin Luther. And he told us that Martin Luther's favorite book is the book of Galatians. Which, if you read Galatians, that makes a lot of sense. Because Galatians is about salvation by faith instead of by works. But Martin Luther's second favorite book is Psalms. Was Psalms. Which I found bizarre. I'm not, a history theolo- I'm not a history scholar, but I never really thought about Martin Luther and Psalms kind of in the same basket. But apparently, Dr. Borchert taught us, it was his second favorite book because it speaks to both sides of the brain at the same time, the whole being. Now, when I think of the Psalms, I think of the songs or of poetry. There's a fair amount of hyperbole in the Psalms, but also a fair amount of history and of Prophecy. And sound instruction of truth. In just the 11 verses of the psalm you heard read today, you heard history, instruction, prophecy. Did you get the prophecy? And a heartfelt cry to God that things are not okay. The book of Psalms is Israel's prayer book. It teaches us how to pray. And it exists today because the people of Israel used the psalms in their worship year after decade after century and often enough to remember them and write them down for us. It's a book of 150 prayers and songs dominated not by the praise and worship that we sing so familiarly every Sunday, but by lament. Lament shaped the worship of Israel Now, when the early Christians were eventually driven out of the synagogue, they brought these prayers with them to their home gatherings, speaking to one another, Ephesians 5 tells us in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Later, when Constantine decriminalized Christianity and the church began to thrive, the 4th century monks, they took umbrage to the fact that Christianity was feeling a little cushy to them. So they escaped to the deserts where they indulged themselves or invested themselves in the, um, the, the, the the, the daily offices, which was reciting or chanting the entire book of Psalms every week which pretty much means that's all they did. Yeah? And it continues today in the Catholic Church in the order of the um, liturgy of hours when the priests will mark every hour with a prayer taken from the Psalms that gets them through the Psalms once a month. My point of all this history being that the Psalms have historically not just been a book for those of us who are artistically inclined, but it's a primer on prayer. I wonder how many of us have ever tried this. A, a group of us in the worship community started doing this a couple years ago, reading a psalm as a prayer out loud every day um, as our prayer. That has changed the way I view prayer. Um, it makes it less about me and more about God, but more so it makes me less prone to only telling God what I think he wants to hear. Yeah? Um, it's a, great, it's a great discipline. We know that Jesus prayed the Psalms, um, certainly not exclusively, but we can assume that Jesus the boy grew up praying them in the synagogue alongside every other devout Jew. And we know that the Psalms were so ingrained in his conscience, so a part of his human psyche, that it was the very words you heard read this morning that he quoted as his last words on the cross. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus was quoting scripture. And I think it's worth noting that just as in the psalm he quotes, in gut-wrenching agony and despair, he addresses a God who is yet very much right there. Of course, we can... See the prophecy revealed in the next verse. All, of the, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord. They say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Later in the psalm, the psalmist writes, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Do you recognize this story? A thousand years before that was written down, Jesus knew the story. Both as God and as man. And he knew exactly what he was doing when he cried out this very specific lament. So we're commanded to make disciples, right? So if Jesus prayed the Psalms, then shouldn't we? If Jesus cried out in lament, then shouldn't we? See, I think the church has neglected the discipline of lament. Probably in a well-meant desire to be this conduit of joy and hope to be light in the dark. But there's this one other piece that I've been sort of mulling over. And if you'll follow me on a rabbit trail, I think, I think there's something to it. I want us to look at Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 15 tells us, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you. Okay, so obviously we're talking about two believers in conflict with one another. We're not talking about a believer in God, right? We got that. But I still think it's interesting. See, Matthew 18 is one of those verses that I wish was rather not there. I don't like that verse. I like the next verse where if the person doesn't listen to me, I get to go back with backup. Yeah? Who will, who, will, who will have my back and back me up? I like that one. But going straight to somebody one-on-one with my issues, not so much. And if I'm honest, I'd almost rather just keep my distance. Yeah? A lot of you are familiar with this book um, many of us read called The Peacemaker by Ken Sand. Um, it's one of the foundational sources of our peacemaking ministry here at Trinity. I was reading this book a couple years ago when I was speaking here on the book of Philemon. And I centered in on the fourth chapter where Sand talks about overlooking. I want to get this right. I've got to find this so I quote him correctly here. Um, if you remember, Paul's writing to Philemon, appealing to him to forgive and restore his relationship with Onesimus. Onesimus is the very slave who robbed Philemon blind before he took off. And what I found fascinating was that nowhere in this letter that Paul writes to Philemon asking him to, res- to, to forgive and restore relationship with Onesimus, does he mention Onesimus' heartfelt apology? It's not there. Nor does he mention Onesimus paying him back. In fact, he says, if Onesimus owes you, I will pay it, which, by the way, is what Jesus did for you on the cross. So this was this mind-blowing concept to me. I have grudges and righteous indignation that I wear like a badge. But Sand writes that to truly overlook an offense means to deliberately decide not to talk about it. Not to dwell on it or let it grow into pent-up bitterness. Endeavoring to release our rights without strings attached. Well, that sets us free, right? The chains that are broken are ours, not the offender. And by the way, that kind of gets me off the Matthew 18 hook. Yeah? Until it doesn't. Right? See, that's why we have Matthew 18. Sometimes we can't. We can't release the hurt or the indignation. The walls are erected by our silence and they separate us from those who have hurt us. And I think we all know when that's going on in our lives. Um, What happens not only to those relationships, but what happens to our hearts and our ability to function in God's story when we say we're overlooking But we're really just avoiding. So if we're honest, don't we feel that way about God sometimes? See, we've got these things going on in our lives that we can't overlook. And we can't let go of. And there's pain. And there's division. And there's strife in our world. And there's nobody we can take that stuff to except God. And if God calls us to go to one another one-on-one when we've got issues, don't you think he wants us to go one-on-one with him too? See, that's what lament is. We come to worship or we sit down to pray and we tell ourselves that everything's good because God is on his throne. We recite scripture of hope and we vow that we're going to do better. We find ways to medicate the pain or to numb it, silence the rough spots. We jump through hoops to proclaim God's glory and stuff down the nagging feelings that things are actually not okay. Y'all, things are not okay. The enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The world is a mess, and you know that is so saying it lightly. Life is not fair. Sometimes... Healing doesn't happen. Sometimes people die. Earthquakes happen. and Wars rage. Nations fall. People, good people, will disappoint us deeply. God on his throne... He doesn't, it doesn't seem, and I know you have to note that word, it doesn't seem that he cares. See, friends, our intellectual understanding of theology and eschatology is not going to heal broken, shattered hearts. But God's story gives us the language to feel, to be present, and to name what we would stuff down and be Eventually made whole. So I asked myself if I choose to avoid being real with God about all this, what does it say about my relationship to Him? And then I asked myself one more thing What is my reaction to cries of lament from others? Who maybe I don't agree with them or I don't think I can relate to them, what does my reaction to them say about me? I ask that because we're walking out our roles in God's story at a point in history in which division is calling the shots. In this nation, in this world, In the church, too, you guys, sometimes especially in the church. And I tell myself that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But that doesn't do a whole lot to change the fact that Sunday morning is the most segregated time of the week. And not just racially socioeconomically, culturally, politically. Now, look, Trinity, we're kind of an exception to that rule. I know that. And if I'm honest with you, when I look at what's going on in the rest of the world, that fact helps me to sleep better at night sometimes. But it doesn't mean we're doing everything we can. And it doesn't mean that we're still not part of the problem. See, we don't as a culture, we we don't really listen, do we? And the church, the big big C church I'm talking about now, we really got to do better. See, it doesn't matter if I agree with you or if I think you're oversensitive and you need to get over it. The word of God tells us to mourn with those who mourn. And you don't have to look far. I know some of you know this far better than I do to see that the brokenness and the isolation and the division only gets worse. How does the church mourn with the Syrian refugee? How do we mourn with the women sold in slavery? With the mothers of the sons and daughters killed by fear, profiling, and hopelessness? with the disenfranchised who believes that God doesn't want them. This is not a political issue. This is about worship. Worship is when we give worth. We declare God as worthy. We tell. We step into God's story, and that requires some vulnerability, you guys. Do you know the words reconciliation and exchange, they have the same root? Like um, exchanging money to equal value. In reconciliation, we exchange perspectives or we change places. And worship, corporate worship I'm talking about now, um, it gives us the opportunity to stand with one another in solidarity in order to be reconciled. We do this with confession. Confession maybe not for what we've done or thought individually, but for systemic humanity. And we do this through lament. Evan Koons tells us, we must be present in the injustice to transform the injustice. Think about that. Through lament, we love our neighbors as ourselves. We find intimacy with our Savior in heart, soul, and mind. We even make disciples. The power of lament is that in all these things, we are walking out our role in God's story, naming the need for his intervention and reconciliation, and opening the door to hope. Now, Keith is going to talk about the power of hope next week. But what we need to understand today is that we can't truly have hope until we've learned to lament first. Bottom line, we're broken, right? We're broken, the world's broken, everybody knows this, but I submit that we work awfully hard to overlook this on an everyday basis. See, we want to skip over to hope, but we can't just skip ahead. See, when we are able to voice our brokenness, our grief, even our rage, and we can bring those cries to the foot of the cross, then we release any control we think we may have. And our hands are open to receive healing. Y'all, the cross is as much a symbol of brokenness as it is of reconciliation, Keith told us a few weeks ago. He said Jesus was so committed to our oneness that he allowed himself to be broken. So we have to allow our hearts to be broken. We have to name it. We have to cry out to God with it. And then, only then, thanks to the cross, we Step into oneness. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, make us one. Lord, we've denied you by refusing to know you, we have betrayed you by keeping our distance. We've mocked you by pretending we are not yours. Lord, we're lost. Let your forgiveness find us. Welcome us into your strong, forgiving arms. And let us feel reconciled again. Amen.